story. I, I don't know if you enjoy the Old Testament as much as I do. I love reading through Genesis and through all the historical narratives. There's so much there. And it's very easy when you, first of all, read these passages to miss some of the great jewels that are just beneath the surface if you just take the time to look and to dig a little more. And we get onto that very shortly. First of all, I want to just talk a wee bit about running away generally. A man decided to quit his job and to run away and join a pirate crew. Spend, after spending some hours at the dockyard, he saw a man that indeed looked like a pirate because he had a head leg. He had one hand that was a hook. He had a patch over one of his eyes. And he went around saying, Arr! Clearly a pirate. So he went to him and said if he could do with another pirate, uh, someone to join his pirate crew, and the captain agreed, and he got on board the ship, and the vessel left the docks that very day. And as he was on the ship after a couple of days, he grew up the courage to go back to the captain and ask him the kind of questions he had as a newly qualified pirate. And he says, I'm, I'm sorry, captain, he says, I can't hold back anymore, but how did you get your peg leg? And the captain said, Arr, he says, it was my first day as a young lad. A great big swell came from the sea and knocked me overboard. Before the crew could pull me out, a giant one-eyed fish swam up and bit off my leg. And the man said, well, that sounds terrible. And so what happened to your hand? And the captain said, Arr, it was my second day at sea. Another great big swell from the sea came up and knocked me overboard. Before the crew could pull me up out of the sea, the giant one-eyed fish swam up and bit off me hand. And I said, well, that one-eyed fish must have really had it in for you, Captain. So how do you lose your left eye? And the captain said, ah, it was my third day. And I was looking up into the sky when a bird flew over the ship and it pooed. And a poo landed right in my eye. And the man said, well, that, that sounds terrible. But is that how you lost your eye? Oh, no, said the captain. Of course not. But it was my first day with my new hook. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever felt that the pressure of life was so great, so difficult, that you just wanted to up sticks and to run away, to relieve your home, your work, whatever your situation is, just to get on the bus or get in the car and just drive, just leave, whatever was going on. And Jacob had been in a difficult situation for many years, 20 years, in fact, we're told. He'd been forced to leave home quickly to travel to his mother's relatives in Padam Haram and had fallen in love with his uncle's daughter called Rachel. And he agreed to work for Rachel for seven years. And yet, on his wedding night, he'd been tricked by his uncle, who married him instead to the oldest daughter, Leah. And then he had to work an additional seven years just to pay off the bridal dowry. Fourteen years. And at the point of the fourteen years, after he finished working off the bridal dowry for both his wives, at that point, he still had no flocks of his own. He'd been working for those 14 years, the hard work of a shepherd, merely to increase the wealth of his uncle, now his father-in-law. He had nothing of his own. He had two wives and their servants, and that was it. None of his own sheep, no herds or anything. 
But, but Jacob was extremely conscientious. Remember, we heard some months ago when we were talking about him when he worked for Isaac, but it was Jacob that ran Isaac's business. He was the one that preferred to be around the home and around the tents. He was a shepherd and not like Esau, who was a playboy and just loved to spend most of his time hunting game. It's called game for a reason, because it's a game to go and get it. It's part of the fun of hunting. You know, um, and Esau was the gamesman, and Jacob was the one who looked after his father's herds. He was a conscientious man. And Laban knew he was on a, onto a good thing with his, his son-in-law. But Jacob had had enough. He tried to leave after he'd served the 14-year period. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 30, where it says, After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me now on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I've served you, and I'll be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He must have been pretty thick if he realized that he just needed divination to, 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 to realize that his blessing had come um, from, from Jacob. And so Laban and Jacob came to a deal and agreed, and, and he actually began to work for an actual wage, wage and build his own flock and sheep. But Laban continued to use the principle of self-interest, and so he was so narrowed focused that even his own daughters and his own grandchildren didn't benefit from Laban's wealth. Every opportunity he had, he changed the rules about Jacob's wages to benefit his interests. Laban comes over in this passage as a totally self-absorbed individual who succeeded not just killing any affection that Jacob may have had for him, but also any affection in his daughters. Jacob wanted to leave, but Laban wanted to keep him there. You see, there's sometimes in our lives, in our Christian lives, that we get into a toxic relationship that holds us back. We need to be clear in our own Christian lives sometimes that we need to make a break. If we're in relationship with people or things that hold us back, that keep us in an environment that damages us and constrains us, we need sometimes maybe to let some things go so we can move on. And things were about to get worse for Jacob because we're told in verse 31 this. Jacob heard that Laban's son was saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Six years have now passed since Jacob had that conversation with Laban saying he wanted to leave. Six years have passed since he paid up the marriage dowry. And Jacob now was more ready to leave than ever. The problem was he didn't believe that Laban would let him leave. Certainly not let him leave with his daughters and certainly not let him leave with the flock that he had built up because he'd now become wealthy. God said to him, go, to go back to his homeland. But now it would be difficult. It's very interesting that God did not say to Laban, uh, did not say to Jacob, go and it will be easy. All God said to him is this, go and I will be with you. 
I will be with you. This is a reminder to all of us that obeying God is not always easy. It can be difficult to leave where we're comfortable, even if it's not, you know, better the devil we know, even if it's not a great situation we're in now and God tells us to go. It can be difficult. But God doesn't say our lives will be easy. He says that he will accompany us wherever we go. Go and I will be with you. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a long journey um, from where he is across back to his own homeland in Canaan. But God will be with him every step of the way. And so he decides to obey. And we see in this passage here, God speaks from the past into the present. God speaks from the past into the present. Jacob's relationship to God had been growing since he first met God in a very real encounter at Bethel. When he left home, he was literally fleeing with his, for his life. He was trying to escape the wrath of his brother Esau, who was plotting to kill him. He left with nothing. And on the very first evening, Jacob, as he leaves Isaac and, um, and Rebekah, he stumbles upon a place. He's tired, and he begins to sleep. And as he sleeps in this place, God appears to him. God reaches out to him. And the place is called Bethel. I love this passage because Jacob was running for his life, quite literally, but God was leading the way. So inadvertently, seemingly, he lands upon this place called Bethel. And Bethel was a place where Abraham had worshipped God. It was a special place. And he lays down and takes a rock as a pillow and puts his head on the pillow. And as he sleeps, God reveals him the famous picture of Jacob's ladder of God and uh, the angels going up and, up and down between heaven and earth. And when he awakes, he says this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. We heard this morning um, when Evelyn was speaking to the children about heaven and how, and how it's important to have some picture of heaven in our lives. And there was Jacob. He had this vision of his ladder between heaven and earth and God involved in the affairs of man with his angels, his administrators, his servants going back and forth, bringing his will upon the earth. And he wakes up and says, how awesome is this place? You see, God had reached out and he had touched, he had touched Jacob and he touched him at Bethel and this place is a place of special memory. And so when God comes to him now and tells him to leave where he's comfortable with, um, with Laban, what does he say? He says this, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. God said, remember. Remember when I appeared to you. Remember when you were in that awesome place. Remember when you were there and you were worried and you were scared and you just left the familiarity of your family. Remember when you're fleeing for your life and I met you at Bethel and you said, how awesome is that place? I am that God. That's me. I'm the same God as the God that you met at Bethel when you were inspired and when you were amazed and when you were thrilled. And God is that same God when we first encountered him. 
when we came to know him, when we first made that decision to follow him. And we often look back in our Christian lives, don't we, and think, wasn't it wonderful during those first years of being a Christian? How excited I was. How I used to be hungry for my Bible. How I used to love going to church, love singing his praises. I couldn't get enough of God. And perhaps then years on, like Jacob, 20 years on, perhaps it's not quite as awesome as it once was. And God speaks to us from the past, into the presence, and calls to us to obedience by saying, I am that God. I am that same God. I haven't changed. What does Malachi 3 verse 6 say? God says, I the Lord do not change. But we do. We do. The reality of is we get older, don't we? And all of us, as we go through life, begin to discover there's things we can't do that we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. On Facebook, there's been a, a, a trend of, of, um, uh, coming up to the new year of people posting pictures of what they were doing or what they looked like 10 years ago. You know, what ha- what's happened in the past decade? And what's happened to our faith in the past decade? God doesn't change. If you experienced great joy in your faith 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, God doesn't change. God is the awesome God. He was at Bethel. And God is calling to Jacob from Bethel and saying, remember me. I am the same God. Now follow me and go. And God calls to us and says, remember me. I am the same God that put that spring in your step, that put that praise in your heart. I am that same God. I want to bless you some more. I want you to bring you to a new awesome place if you just follow me and go my way. He says to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. And he calls us today to remember our vows, like he calls Jacob to remember our vows, and to keep on obeying, not to give up, to keep on following him. You see, Jacob got it. And what's been happening in Jacob's life since he was there with his mother Rebecca and he was deceiving his father Isaac? God has been working in his life. He is changing. He's becoming a different man. He now very freely speaks about God and God's involvement. He speaks about God appearing to him. God is using and working and transforming Jacob. He's making him and bringing him towards becoming Israel. That happens very shortly in the next couple of chapters. God calls to him from Bethel, the place of amazement, and says, I am that God. I haven't changed. Remember your vows. Let me encourage each one of you to seek the Lord and have that same excitement about him. And to seek him until you find that excitement. Read Christian books. Listen to Christian radio. Immerse yourself in the Lord. Drown out the darkness that seems to exist so much out there. And hear his voice again. I am the God of Bethel. Jacob got it, but sadly Rachel didn't. And she brings the problems of the past into the present. And when Jacob tells his wives that God has told him that he needs to leave Laban and return to his father Isaac, they both, both daughters, Leah and Rachel, share their grief at the way they've been treated by their father. We're told this. When Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? 
when they say, does not he regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he's used up what he paid for us. They felt treated like foreigners, like strangers, isolated from their father. Not only that, the dowry that had been given by Jacob for 14 years had been used up on Laban, which was wrong. The whole idea of the dowry was to be used as a blessing upon the daughters and upon their families. And yet Laban selfishly had used it up. What's interesting is scholars have noted that in the ancient Near East, generally, um, people earned, shepherds earned, around about one and a half shepherds per, uh, one and a half shekels per month. And so Laban's offer to work seven years for Rachel was an incredibly generous offer. And what does Laban do? He deceives Jacob and he makes him double his offer by taking one of the daughters he didn't even want. And this extremely generous offer becomes an extremely onerous dowry indeed, but takes 14 years to pay off. And in that time, all the wealth that Laban acquired from Jacob, none of it was given to Leah or to Rachel. And so the daughters now saw Jacob's present wealth as a blessing from God. They said this, surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. There seems to be no love lost in this relationship. Even their father was not a hardship for either of them. They believed that their father had literally sold them out. However, Rachel was not willing to leave without, first of all, taking something of her father's security. And so we're told this, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And these household gods are literally teraphim, which are small wooden or pottery gods that were carried by nomadic peoples and other people. Soldiers used to carry them. And they used to be, if they were on, 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 on operations, there'd be two or three of them wrapped in a cloth and kept in the, the knapsack of the soldier. But if they're shepherds or other people, they would have a shelf in their house and they'd have these teraphim arranged. Some of them, like these ones here, uh, will be fertility uh, goddesses. And others of them will be gods like these here, but actually meant to represent some of the ancient gods in the, around. But why would Rachel steal her father's gods? God reminded Jacob that he was the same God that appeared to him at Bethel, where Jacob had seen a vision of God at work, both in earth and in heaven. But Rachel wasn't at Bethel. Perhaps the small and limited gods of her father were the only gods she had known. And now with the prospect of moving away from her homeland towards a foreign land, for it was an unknown future. She wanted some security. And so took the security and the full security from her past. Her father Laban had already proved uh, to both her and to Leah that he was not a good father and was driven more by the love of comfort and money than any parental love for his daughters. Yet these little gods held more security and familiarity for Rachel. These little gods of her past, she still craved. God has said to Jacob, I'll be with you. But that wasn't enough for Rachel. She wanted the comfort and security of these small divine figures. It would seem that Rachel was not yet the woman of faith, but Jacob had become. 
but she was a woman of superstition. It's really sad that sometimes when we move on in our lives, we take things in with our lives, things in our knapsack, things in our homes that hold us back to the previous life, things that damage us. And the crazy thing about these gods is they couldn't protect Rachel. They couldn't even help Rachel. Rachel has to carry them. These gods can't carry her. She has to hide them because they can't even hide themselves. They're impotent, small wooden or pottery figurines that have no power, no majesty, and no ability to make any difference. They were simply a superstition. And we need to be careful we don't carry superstitions from the past into our future, that we strive to get those things that make us feel comfortable, that give us a bit of sense, a feel-good factor that aren't godly or right, that can damage us in our present or in our future. Bad theology, superstitions we carry. And these two little gods almost cost Rachel her life. Jacob agrees that if he could find the gods, the person who has them, their life will be forfeit. And that was agreeable in the ancient Near East. The famous uh, um, uh, emperor Hammurabi had a law code, one of the oldest law codes we know. You can read about it in the British Museum. And that law code stated that the stealing of household gods was a capital crime. So what Jacob was saying was exactly right. If you're caught stealing someone else's gods, you could be killed for that by law. These little gods almost cost Rachel her life. We've got to be so careful that superstitions don't shape our future and hold us back in our lives. When I was a pastor in my second church in Birmingham, I heard the true story uh, talking to an Indian man I met. He told me the story about his wife in cutting fish. And his wife used to get the fish on the, on the platter and she used to cut off the head and loads of flesh for the head and cut off the towel and loads of flesh for the towel. She would cut basically from the fish, no matter how big it was, a small cube of round about six inches and she'd throw the rest in the bin and put that six inches of fish, no matter how big the fish was, put the six inches of fish into the frying pan to fry and to grill. And one day he said, darling, that's a terrible waste of fish. Why do you cut it that way? And they were Hindus and his wife said, well, I'm a Hindu and this is the way my mother taught me to cut fish. Okay, good answer. He didn't bother with it anymore. That's a good, he was put in his place. But anyway, this got his wife thinking, why was I taught to cut fish this way as a Hindu? So she, she her mother was also living in, in Birmingham. So she then, the next time she saw her mother, said, Mum, why do you teach me to cut fish, you know, six inch square and put it in the, in a, grill it in the, in the pan? And the mother said, well, he says, I'm a Hindu and that's the way my mother taught me to cut fish. Oh, okay. And this got her mother thinking about why she cut fish this way. So the next time she's on the phone back to India, she asked her mother, the other one, grandmother, says, Mum, why did you teach me to cut fish this way? We cut so much off the tail and so much from the head and only have about six inches left and put it in a pan. Why did we cut fish that way, Mum? And the grandmother said, Ah, oh, I says, I tell you why, my daughter. It says, because when I got married, I had a very small pan. 
Our lives in the present could be shaped by the past. Because of a superstition, we believe we have to do it this way because of the way it's always been done or whatever, and yet we don't ever investigate why we're doing things the way we are. We can easily carry baggage in the present that holds us back. And this baggage threatened not just Rachel's welfare, but the safety of the whole caravan, and now holds them all up. So Laban is able to accuse Jacob in verse 30. Why did you steal my gods? And so we come finally to see Laban in this passage. And we see Laban changes the past to conceal the sins of the present. Laban changes the past to conceal the sins of the present. And as you read this passage, you can really feel the tension building. Make a great film, wouldn't it? We're told in verse 25, but Jacob apprenticed... Uh, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him and Laban and his relatives camped there also. So they overtake him in the hill country. Jacob cannot move fast. He's got herds of flocks of sheep. Laban's come on camels with his relatives as a war party, a hunting party. And, and, and um, uh, basically Jacob's a huge caravan. La uh, Laban can probably achieve around about 30 to 40 miles a day. And so in fact, traveled, he's in fact traveled 300 miles in seven days. But Jacob can achieve a maximum of about 13 to 14 miles a day with all his flocks. And so they camp not far, and Jacob can see his son's uh, father-in-law's camp. He can see the fires. They haven't come there yet. Yet early in the morning, there's the thunder of hooves. And you can see Laban riding into the, into the camp with his relatives, ready for a battle. You can just imagine the fear and the foreboding in that camp the following morning. But something had happened during the night. God had spoken to Laban. And Laban, the worshipper of two small wooden gods, was not used to a real encounter of the living God. And so we're told this. Then, Laban, then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, God took the wind out of Laban's sails and took out his ability to go and ride into that caravan in the morning and cause havoc. It's fascinating that Jacob come, uh, Laban comes into this camp and he says this, I have the power to harm you. But last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, whilst he may have had the power to harm Jacob, Laban knew that God has even greater power to harm Laban. He has to take care as God is caring for Jacob just as he promised. And Jacob knows this full well, because we read earlier on in verse 7 this. He said to, the, to his, his, his wives, Your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. Laban wanted to harm him. Laban had been harming him for 20 years. He'd been constraining him, making him work off an unfair dowry and now working for six years as, a, as his chief shepherd and changing the wages ten times. But God had not allowed Laban to harm his servant, Jacob. 
And God will not allow his servants to be harmed. He will protect his servants. He is in control. And Laban's power is as small as his little lost gods. Laban's power is all in his voice, in the volume, in his bark, but not in his bite. This is very true of Satan, and I believe us as a Christian church in this country need to be aware of this. I need to learn, again, the art of spiritual warfare because we retreat so much at the bark and the roar of Satan. Yet God has given us so many promises in the Bible. Jesus said this, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' hands are so powerful, we cannot be snatched out of those hands. We're told in James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil cannot cope with strong Christians who stand up to him. He will retreat. That's a promise in Scripture. Yet so often we retreat from him and we don't stand. And we don't stand our ground. Now Laban comes into the tent and he comes with a big roar and says, I can harm you, but actually, no, I can't. Because God said I can't. He hasn't got the ability So all he's left doing is rummaging around in a comical scene looking for his little lost gods. How comical is that? Laban is demanding that Jacob release his gods. How can they be gods if they need to be released? Because the little diminutive deities can't even release themselves or reveal themselves to Laban. They, like Laban's bark, or a hollow roar with no power and strength. See, the truth is that our God is a real God, a living God. He's not represented by little figurines or statues or anything like that. He reveals himself to people personally. He reveals himself in great ways and comes into people's lives and gives them power and confidence and strength. Now Jacob's angry. And he says to to Laban, you know I've worked for you with all my strength he talks about the way that God blessed him even though Laban kept changing his ways God kept changing um, uh, genetically the sheep basically what Jacob had agreed with Laban was he'd worked initially for speckled then for striped then for black and and these were around about five to seven percent of a normal flock yet somehow as Laban kept on changing the rules God was in control, and that's what the angel of the Lord showed him. But the sheep that were coming that were plain-colored, in fact, weren't plain-colored. Genetically, had a different DNA. And somehow God had blessed, Laban, uh, blessed Jacob out of, out of Laban's ch- uh, trying to steal, steal the flocks from him and given him vast wealth. And Jacob is angry and says to Laban, What is my crime? How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Laban knows but later, that he's done nothing wrong. And eventually, rather like a mafioso boss, he then becomes very conciliatory. He says, these women and daughters and his children are my children, all the flocks are yours, and all you see is mine in verse 43. But then he says in verse 44, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let, us, let it serve as a witness between us. You see, Laban realizes the game is up. 
and he has no evidence to show that Jacob is dishonest and now tries to claim the role of a peacemaker. And so they build a monument, what's called in Hebrew a gilad, which is a, a, heap, of, um, a heap of witness. But Jacob, Laban, goes one further and he calls the monument a mispah, which is literally in Hebrew a watchtower. And then, strangely enough, claims it's going to protect him in case Jacob ever comes back to do harm to him in the future. There's a lot of comedy here in the Hebrew. Laban, with his war party, seeks to hunt down his errant son-in-law, but now claims he needs help from God to protect him in case Jacob wants to come back after his father-in-law. This man's a blowhard who makes things up to provide for him to give him a reality that he's comfortable with. He's a fantasist, Laban. And the evidence is actually seen in verse 51. I've missed a couple of slides. Laban said to Jacob in verse 51, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. Looks quite good, doesn't it? Laban says, Here's this pillar that I have set up. But when you read the passage, you'll find in verse 45 it says this, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So he took stones and piled them up into a heap. So Jacob has built this heap with his relatives, not Laban, but Laban says, oh, here's this heap I built. May it stand as a witness. May it be mispah as a watchtower between you and me. Laban didn't build a memorial. Jacob and his relatives did. And just like Jacob, Laban didn't build his flocks, Jacob did. Jacob had made Laban wealthy, but Laban was a man who liked to take credit for all the work of others and took offense if people didn't believe his fantasies. So Jacob was able to go home. Eventually, with a blessing of Laban, although it's quite clear in the passage that Laban kisses everyone in the caravan except Jacob himself. But he actually makes something which is quite interesting. He describes God as a watchtower. And in a very real way, this is very true of God's role over the life of Jacob. Because although Laban had tried to harm Jacob, God had watched over the interests of his servant. God very literally was like a watchtower, guarding and protecting Jacob and his family. And God is our mispah. God is our watchtower. Even when there's people out there with loud barks who try and do us harm, God is in control. God watches over us. God prevents the harm that others will do. Let me encourage you all to trust in the Lord, to go his way, even when you're facing people who may be standing in your way and trying to prevent you do the things of God, who make your life a misery, who perhaps cause you to fear. Trust in the Lord. He will not allow them to harm you. God is our mispah. Is the one who watches over us as he watched over Jacob and watched over Rebecca and, uh, uh, sorry, Rachel and Leah and all their family. God is the God who calls us from Bethel and calls us to follow him and to go forward boldly into the future. Let's stand and sing.